This is a One and All Media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and today I'm excited because Pastor Jeff is starting a new series called The Story. He's going to be stepping through the whole Bible, looking at the creation story all the way through the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. In this episode, he speaks about the creation of the world and explains how we are at the center of God's world, that we are the reason he created all things. Join me over the coming weeks for this epic journey through the Bible. But for now, let's kick off in Genesis. Here's Pastor Jeff Vines. Man, I hope you're ready for this. This is gonna be the most fun we've had in a long time. We start a series called The Story. Now look, the story is not a book different from the Bible. It's actually the NIV translation of the Bible. That's what's inside this story. But it's a collection of the major narratives, the narratives that are so cohesive and coherent that it helps you understand how every story that you know in the Bible ultimately is related to the bigger story. And so you might know the story of the Ten Commandments or Noah and the Ark. You might know Gideon's battle with the Midianites. But this is a series that will help take you through the major narratives of the Bible in order for you to see how they're all correlated and connected, that you might see God's overarching story as discovered in Scripture. And that's why it's so exciting. We get to go through the major narratives. It's going to be fun. We start with the book of Genesis. And that's a great place to start. Uh, here's how I want to get you thinking, though, along the way. This, this will do wonders for us, I think. There's a piece of music I want you to hear. So I'm going to ask the guys to gear it up. Here's the mu- If you know it, shout it out. Identify it. Johan Puckabell's Canon in D, right? You got it? You guys all knew that, right? Okay. We're gonna let it, this is one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written. You're going to hear it all the time. But the entire song uh, really is structured on eight basic notes running to the bass line. You hear those eight basic notes really from start to finish. And even though the music will intensify and will get incredibly complex... It's still founded on those eight basic notes from beginning to end so that the listener knows that there are many different musical notes, many different segments, themes, but one composition. Now, (laughs) that's how the Bible is, and that's why it's a good start. Throughout the Bible, you're going to see different scenes. You're going to see things like the great battle scenes taking place in the Valley of Megiddo. You're going to see the crossing of the Red Sea. You're going to see the walls of Jericho falling, destruction. You're going to see a great flood uh, that covered the, the whole world at that time. 
One composition, though, one story. In fact, somebody has put it like this. History is his story recorded in the story. History is his story, God's story, recorded in the story, the Bible, in this case, the NIV translation. So it makes perfect sense then that we would start the story of all history with the words, in the beginning, God. Now, this is the book of Genesis. Anybody know what Genesis means? Beginnings or origins. So in the beginning, God. And to understand the beginning, you first have to remember two things. Here's the first thing. Genesis was not written to us. It was written for us. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. It's like that you've uh, stumbled along and you found a letter that was written to somebody else, but then you picked it up and you thought, man, this is incredibly relevant to me. And it's almost like somebody dropped the letter there on purpose to make sure you would find it. In fact, when we're talking about the Bible, I heard somebody say, it's almost as if there is this relentless effort by some outside agent to make sure that the Bible would be available to generation after generation and tribe after tribe. Do you know 168,000 copies of the Bible are sold or given away every single day on planet Earth? 168,000. As long as they've been keeping statistics on the number one bestsellers list, no book has ever outsold the Bible in a given year. It's almost as if there's an outside agent. And this outside agent keeps the Bible alive, available. It's been translated into more languages than any other book ever written. Outsold more copies, been translated into more language, more people, more times. No book compares to the Bible. So it starts with God's story in the beginning. But you have to remember, it's not written to you, but for you. Second, Genesis is not a science book. If this is not about the how God created. Now, yeah, you're going to get some details and some information, but if it was all about the how, there'd be a lot more information in Genesis 1 to 2 and 3. Okay? It's not a science book. It is meant to tell you why God created, for what purpose he's made the world, and why human beings exist. And the reason you and I read this and we're so intrigued is because it deals with the four questions everybody has of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where did we come from? How did it all start? What's the meaning to my life? What am I supposed to do with my life? What's morality? How I ought to live? What is right? What is wrong based on origin and meaning and destiny? Where am I ultimately going when I die? Am I going to live forever? No, I know that much. Is the world going to be forever? Where's its destiny? How does it end? It starts right here in Genesis. Genesis is written for us, but not to us. It's not a science book. Somebody might say, and I've heard this before, but Pastor Jeff, isn't it true that other ancient civilizations also had their story of how the world began? And my answer is, yes. What's your point? Elephants have ears. I have ears. That doesn't make me an elephant, right? <laughs> Just because two things have something in common doesn't mean that they have everything in common. In fact, in the ancient mythologies, they had little to nothing to do with the biblical account of creation. And in fact, they had everything in common with each other. And as a matter of fact, the ancient stories and civilization of creation did not deal with creation at all. And I'll explain that just in a moment. But there were incredible similarities between the ancient accounts. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, the world, they said, is created out of something that already exists. So that doesn't really deal with origins. So in ancient civilization, stories of creation, they had these monsters coming up out of the sea. And because they were so strong and powerful, they're the ones who created the planet. 
But you notice how the question just, just gets put back. Where did he come from? And the ocean. Uh, in other ancient civilizations, they had these creation stories where the gods, there were a plurality of gods, and there were many of them. And they would all come together and fight each other. And then whoever won got to create the heavens and the earth. But nobody ever explains where they came from. I mean, it's kind of like Francis Crick during the Scopes trial. He was a lawyer that was asked, Mr. Crick, if you don't believe that the world, that the universe came as a result of a, a creator designer, then what's your explanation of how the planet got here? And his response, and he's supposed to be a scientist, said this, by spaceships coming and dropping spores on this planet. That's how life began. But do you notice again, that really doesn't deal with the question of origin, does it? Because where did the spaceship come from? And the aliens who were riding it and their planets on which they live. No ancient creation story deals with origins. It just deals with what happens and after somebody else got here. The world is created out of something that already exists. Number two, quickly, the gods did not really look much like gods in the ancient creation stories. Their gods didn't get along. They were constantly fighting. It was like sibling rivalries. They, they even struggled with morality. They needed the humans to help them determine what right and wrong was. And they used the humans as kind of gophers to go get food and water. Now, I'm not that smart, but this is just a good guess. Man, if you're a god and you need humans to find you food and water, you're not very godly. Three, this is the commonalities now in the ancient creation stories the ancients were not sure who was God and who was not. They automatically worshiped the sun and personified the sun and worshiped the sun. In fact, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the planets. Because they were out there and unexplainable and there's so much that was unknown, anything that was unexplainable or unknown, they called gods. And so in their mind, they worshiped the sun and the moon because they seemed to control everything. Day, night, rain, cold, the tides, growth, stagnation, and in some ways, life and death itself. But a major part the consistency in the ancient creation mythologies. The consistent part was this, that all the gods ultimately were fighting against these mythological creatures that were strange, weird, if not just downright eerie, referred to as the chaos monsters. And so the creation myths out of the ancient world all came about out of the context of how the gods defeated the chaos monsters and pushed them back so humans could live on the earth. Now, in these original stories, humanity is just an afterthought. There's no divine purposes behind the universe at all. It's all about the gods and their struggle against the chaos monsters. So understand that just because two things have something in common doesn't mean they have everything in common and doesn't mean they're one and the same thing because then you come to Genesis. Now, Genesis seems to be God's word to man to clear up the confusion about creation. I, I got a couple of hard questions for you. And those of you who've been in church for a long time, I think you're going to be surprised. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Who? Moses. You say, wait, 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 wait. Moses doesn't show up until Exodus. Wait, how, does, how did he write the story of creation? I mean, was he there taking notes? Day one, light. Slow down, God. I got to get this. No, because man wasn't created yet. So how does Moses know what to write in Genesis 1? And the answer is, sometime after God took Moses on the mountain, Sinai, and gave him the Ten Commandments, the law by which the people should live, somewhere between that time and the time before they crossed the Jordan over into the Promised Land, the 40 years of wandering, God took Moses and he delivered to him the creation story to clear up the confusion in the ancient world. 
So it makes perfect sense then that Genesis 1, we're told, is written to challenge the core and fundamental assumptions about God and human beings and the purpose for this world. But to understand Genesis, you've got to remember, it's written for you, but it's not written to you. So you've got to understand the language that was originally written that you might be able to apply it to your own life. So here we go. In the beginning, God, the Bible says, created the heavens and the earth. Now to you and I, that says, okay, we've heard that all of our lives, but to the ancient world, they saw that word created, which is the Hebrew word ex nihilo, which means to create out of nothing. They would have heard and say, wait a minute, you mean there's one God that created everything? And if there's one God that created everything, that's mean he, he, would, he would be sovereign over everything. They understood how a king and kingdom work. A king who establishes a kingdom is sovereign over that kingdom. So they're thinking, wait a minute, that means God is all powerful, that he is above all things. Because if God created all things, he wouldn't be subject to anything, and he wouldn't be afraid of anything. This is a God who would be strong and omnipotent. He would have enough power to control absolutely everything. And by the way, just a little side note, in Genesis 1, verse 21, and if you're in the story, it's page 2, third paragraph, second sentence, it says, so God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. Why does Genesis find it important to tell us? Why did God find it important to tell us, hey, by the way, I made the whales and the sea creatures, and I made even the hippopotamus. I made those guys. Now, why does God find it necessary to tell Moses about that? And here's the reason. Because in the ancient world, these were the animals that were mysterious, they were unknown, and therefore they were worshipped. So the writer in Genesis is trying to write to the people he's writing to to make it very clear that even the greatest forces in the universe that you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the whales, the sea monsters, all of those, God made, which means he rules over them, which means there's no need to be afraid. They were thought up in his mind. I got to tell you, some of the animals I see in the world, I think, what on earth was going through God's mind when he made that a, a porcupine? I mean, what, how do you draw the diagram? What about porcupine, hippopotamus, really ostrich, those animals? God writes that. But the purpose of Genesis is to remind you that God has his purposes, even though you may not know what they are. And no force in the universe threatens God. God made these animals. These creatures are his pets. He made Orca. Okay? He made Shamu. He probably didn't give him the name Shamu, but he made Shamu. He made the shack. In the beginning, God created to the ancient world. It would have meant to them that God was sovereign over everything and whatever he desired would be done. As a matter of fact, the most popular command found in the Old Testament is the word or the words are the words, do not be afraid. You find it 366 times in the Old Testament, one for each day of the year and one for leap year. And the reason given that you should not be afraid is the Bible says, because I am with you. The ancients, when they heard that God created everything out of nothing, they would have known immediately what that meant. We don't have to be afraid. John Ortberg, I don't know if you know him, great preacher, great author. I think I've read everything he's ever written. You may not know that he was at one time, years ago, a pastor of a church that met at Lone Hill, where we have our satellite campus, one of them now. And after that, he went to Chicago with Willow Creek, and now he's in San Francisco. And he said that while he was living in L.A., some friends of his invited him downtown LA and they went to, out to dinner and then they wanted to go to a bar afterwards. He said, I didn't want to go, but I went. So he went. Now he's downtown LA very late at night in not such a good place. And he said, we walked out. And when we walked out, I looked over to the right hand side and there were these two men fighting, but one man was really beating the other man very badly. And he said, I'm a pastor, so I'm not brave. And when I heard that, I think, why did those two things have to go together? But he said, I'm a pastor, I'm not brave. And he said, so I looked at the guy and I knew I couldn't just go without saying anything. So as a pastor, I said, hey, you there. You stop that. 
And he said, the man that was beating the other guy stood up and he looked at me and there was genuine fear in his eyes and he started to run away. And he said, I got really brave. And I said, and don't you come back. <laughs> and he said, then I turned around and bumped in to Mongo. Mongo was the six feet, eight inch tall bouncer of the bar. And that guy wasn't looking at me. He was looking past me to Mongo. And John Orberg says, it's amazing how brave I became when I knew I had a big Mongo standing behind me. And that's the purpose, at least one of the purposes of Genesis, the creation, that God is sovereign over it all. And because he is, there's no need to fear. He doesn't fear anything. Now keep going. Then it says the earth was formless and empty. Those are two Hebrew words, tohu and bohu. Sounds like cartoon characters, don't they? Tohu and bohu. But it's a word, a phrase that means, stay, stay with me, shapeless mass. And the writer's getting to something in the ancient world. He's trying to say that God made the stuff from which he makes all things. First he makes the stuff and then he creates all things. You've heard of the story about the scientists who come to God and say, God, we don't need you anymore. We can do everything you can do. And God patiently listens. He says, we can do miraculous things and we can even clone human beings. And God said, you can do everything I can do. Scientist says, yes. He says, okay, let's have a little contest. Let's have a man-making contest. And the scientist reaches down to get dirt and God says, hey, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. See, that's the point. God created the stuff first. That's why the Bible tells you it's formless and void, that he created the stuff first and then the stuff out of which everything else is made. And then he takes the chaos and brings beauty, pattern, and design into it. And that's the same God that can take the chaos in your life and bring beauty, pattern, and design to it. But there's something else. It says formless and empty, tohu and bohu. To you and I, that doesn't mean a lot. The ancients, it was common classic language for this. If something is tohu and bohu, it does not work. It's ineffective. It's not efficacious, as the theologians would say. Something's wrong. Keep going. Darkness, the Bible says, hovered over the earth, over the surface of the deep. This is a Hebrew word used only of a mother bird hovering over her little birdies to teach them how to fly. And so the writer is saying, first God created the mass from which everything else would come, and then he hovered over it, hovering over creation to teach it how to be effective, how to work. Now you say, well, in order to know how creation can work and can thrive, we've got to know what the purpose of creation is. And the biblical answer to that is this. God created to bring order out of the chaos so that human beings could have a wonderful home in which to live. Now here's what you say. Pastor Jeff, that's all well and good. Sounds really good. How do you know that? Show me that in the Bible. I can show you that by the way the creation story is written. It's not written to us, but it's written for us. And it tells us something. It speaks volumes. Day one, remember? God said, let there be light. And in this day, he separates light from the darkness. And there's day and there's night and there's seasons. Everything human beings need to live and thrive. Sun, sunlight, darkness, photosynthesis, growth. Everything. Day two comes. And God separates the sky from the sea. Now, if you've studied environmental science, you know the sea and the sky are great partners. What do they do together? Together, the sky and the sea produce weather so that you and I can have rainy seasons, dry seasons, cold and hot. He makes the rain come down over humanity so that there can be life and vegetation and productivity on earth for the sake of man. Day three comes, and I'm at the top of page two in your story, dry land and vegetation. Over the next 11 verses, it talks about seed-bearing plants, weather, rain, soil, earth, land, vegetation. It's amazing that the food chain even exists. It's like a miracle. It's like God knew we would need to eat. And then the first three days are put together, and the second three days are all related to the first three. 
So day one, God says, I'll make light. Let there be light. But then on day four, he makes particular lights. The sun, the moon, the stars. Page two, second paragraph into the fourth line in the story says that God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Now, what's the greater light? Why doesn't he just say God made the sun? God made the sun because of this. Genesis is not written to us, but for us. Under the ancient world, when they heard that, they would have said, whoa, God, wait, wait, what? In the ancient world, everybody believed that the sun was a God, so they worshiped it. And now the writer of Genesis is saying, no, 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 you're missing the point. The sun isn't God. The sun is not to be worshiped. The sun was made by God. He would be sovereign over the sun, so he alone is the one that deserves worship and praise. Now, James, and that's going to come a lot later in the story, picks up on that in the New Testament and basically understands what Genesis is communicating. And he says this in a way to encourage us. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He says, the same God that made the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavenly lights, God, that God, he's the same one that brings down blessings into your life every single day. And he is not like the weather patterns. He's not shifting and changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, just pause right here for a moment. I got a lot of stuff to cover in a short amount of time. I need your help. I need you to concentrate. It's easy for us to look at ancient civilizations and say, man, they were stupid. I mean, really? Worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and sea monsters coming out. I mean, come on. I mean, they weren't very smart, were they? Well, I wonder what the ancients would say about us. We worship things that have been created. We worship money. Remember, worship is anything that you trust, serve, and obey. The more money you have, the more you trust in yourself, in your own security. You obey money, you're willing to do whatever it tells you to get more of it. You serve it. Whatever changes you have to make in your life to get more money, you're willing to do it. How are the, you think the ancients would look at us in modern day and say, man, you're stupid, man. Why are you worshiping stuff? Some of us worship success. We think that's how we get our meaning out of life. As long as other people know about us, as long as people are thinking about as long as people raise us up above everybody else, as long as we have position and power, we think that's what matters. But that's temporary. At best, it's temporary. And people are fickle, man. You can't trust them from one day to the next. What is popular today may not be popular tomorrow. You trust, you serve, you obey other things. So before you take a good look at the ancient world and say, boy, they sure were stupid. I'm not so sure we can do that. We have some of the same habits. And then comes, remember day two, where the God creates weather, sky, and sea. And then day five, what does God do? It's connected with day two. He fills the sky and the sea. He makes birds of the air and fish of the sea. I like that too. <laughs> then on day three, it's about food coming forth on dry land and on the earth. But what happens on day six? On day six, God fills up the earth with land and human beings. And it's all related. You say, Jeff, what's the point? You and I struggle with it, but the ancients would have heard it loud and clear that there is a creator God who made everything out of nothing. And he must be a joyful, generous creator, an inventor, a designer, an engineer, bringing all this order and function out of the chaos in the universe so that he could give good gifts to his children. In the creation story in the ancient world, it's about the God struggling with chaos. In the biblical creation story, it's about God making planet earth for us. He makes the heavens, he makes the earth, and then he fills it with stuff that will cause us to not only survive, but to be able to thrive. And he's incredibly creative as he does it. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested. Why did God need to rest? God get tired? No, God doesn't get tired. Because Genesis was written for us, but not to us. Ancient civilization would have understood this completely because a king takes a place on his throne. And it's said in the ancient civilization, when the king sits on his throne, that he rests on his throne. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.